No one likes to feel stuck, especially by your cloud. But the IBM cloud is the most open and secure public cloud for business. It can manage all your apps and data anywhere. Smart loves problems. IBM, let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash flexible. Welcome to The Sporting Life with Jeremy Schaap. Over the next hour, Jeremy sits down with two of the stars of the World Cup champion U.S. women's national team. We are very lucky to wear the shirt and to represent America in a way that no team really does. Uh, we're very lucky. We play all kinds of games all year long. And I think that we do an incredible job of representing every American. And Italian soccer team owner Rocco Camiso talks about the state of American soccer. The women have done great because of the early successes the American women have had, but the men have really not done well, including the fact that they did not qualify for the World Cup this year. So there's a lot of issues in American soccer that need to be dealt with. Plus, author Matthew Futterman discusses one of the most important people in American distance running history. He's really the only figure that was there at the birth of the running boom and was one of the first people in this country trying to figure out how we run far fast and say, East Africans, there's nothing biologically different than us. They're just working harder. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Here's Jeremy Schaap. Welcome to another edition of The Sporting Life. Last Sunday in France, the U.S. women's national soccer team won its second consecutive World Cup. It's fourth overall since the inception of the tournament in 1991. But it wasn't just the team's play on the field that captured the imaginations of so many. Earlier this week, I had a chance to sit down with two of the stars of the U.S. team. Here's part of our conversation. They both scored six goals at the Women's World Cup. Alex Morgan and Megan Rapino, congratulations. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Yeah, you get any sleep in the last uh, couple of days? <laughs> yeah, not, a little bit. Not much. Yeah. Maybe as many hours as we had goals in a couple of days. <laughs> All right, so that's, what is that? That's 12 goals. Um, yeah. Any, you know, hostility between the two of you over the, the golden boot? <laughs> what happened there? You know, the way it was decided? I mean, it was decided fairly. Yeah. This this girl deserves it. And golden ball, golden boot, um, she played fantastic. So uh, as long as one of us got it. That's what that we said. Was, I, I talked to her in the, in the first game. I said, let's just make sure someone in our line gets it. Obviously, yeah. I was thinking that she, she would get it. I'm never having this many goals. Well, uh, this girl came out clutch with the penalties. Yeah, so. she's drawing all the penalties. I'm putting them away. It, it could have been very different. At one point, though, in Spain, it looked like you were going to take the penalty. And yeah. then you did. it would have been a very different result in the scoring race had, yeah, I know. had the opposite yeah, occurred. Yeah, I didn't think about that. No. Coach's <laughs> decision, though. <laughs> what are you going to do? You've got a ticker tape parade here in New York scheduled for Wednesday. What, what, what does it mean to you to be celebrated in that fashion? I mean, it's incredible. Obviously, we were both part of the uh, 15 success in the, the parade then. And just seeing, like, I felt like hundreds of thousands of people every corner we turned um, in New York City, it was it was pretty amazing. And we're kind of in our bubble, you know, in France, like we were in Canada. So to come back here and to really just see the magnitude of the impact that we have on people, um, we're, you know, we're feeling it for the first time. I mean, there's no better place to celebrate. This is New York City. Um, like she said, uh, 15 was incredible, but this just seems so much bigger yeah. and so much more. I think 15 was more of a soccer success and sort of in that realm. And this just is so much beyond sport. 
um, and just coming home, even just for the short time that we've been home, um, to see the support that we've had and who we've touched and who's reaching out. Um, it's just absolutely incredible. Yeah. What, what makes it bigger than sport? Oh, I, just, I think just the last four years, I mean, I think 15 sort of kicked off, um, you know, this sort of movement that we're in for us. And I feel like, honestly, we're part of this bigger movement, whether it's equal pay or equal rights or whatever it is. Um, it just seems like this is kind of a turning point in history. It seems like one of those little special moments that um, everyone will look back on and, you know, gain inspiration from us. I know we gain inspiration from everybody else um, out there doing incredible work. Yeah, I feel like success always demands attention. And I feel like we've been given the platform now for four years in a row, and now it's going to continue. Does it feel different to you, uh, Alex, in terms of what this team achieved beyond the pitch this year? Yeah, it's different. You know, I feel like each year we kind of gain confidence in our voice and in the opinions that we want to um, raise with you know, with using our platform. So I feel like it's been really good. It's kind of been a little bit of a learning curve for a lot of us, but the younger players are so confident in themselves and kind of us veterans. Um, it, it's great to just see so many eyes on us and be able to kind of use a platform for the greater good. From the very beginning of the tournament, obviously you guys always have uh, a bullseye on you because <laughs> you're the most talented team in the world and you're the defending champions, but also um, – with the 13 nothing win against Thailand, the criticisms of the celebration, the back and forth. It seemed this team, more than ever, was a target. How did you take uh, that energy, the positive energy, the negative energy, and transform it into something that you could use? I think, honestly, these last four years have prepared us for that kind of media attention. I think that, as Alex was saying, we've all found our voice more and more and the confidence in that, not only as a group, but sort of um, as individuals as well. And so it just seemed like every moment there was, you know, negative or positive or tweets or this and that. And the group just kind of takes it on the chin and keeps going. Um, I think that we also are so confident in our true north. Like, we know that we are doing the right thing. We know we set the right example. We go about things the right way. We're respectful. We respect the game. Um, and we play our absolute hearts out for each other, for this country. Um, and on the biggest stage, um, I think that this team just relishes that moment and just, you know, performs every time. It, it was such a big roller coaster. I mean, because you guys were in the eye of the storm for a full month over there. And yeah. you beat uh, five European teams in Europe. You beat the hosts. What was it like being at the center of it, all that pressure for so long, Alex? Um, I feel like a lot of my teammates were super helpful for me. And just everyone leaned on each other in the right time. And I think that's why this team was so special. Um, but we also just kept that bubble really tight. Obviously, you had to laugh off some of the negative criticism or here and there. You just had to kind of shake your head and, and continue moving forward. Um, like P said, we kind of stayed true to, um, you know, what we knew and what we felt strongly about. And um, this team kind of just like rallied together. And it helps that we were in France and kind of isolated from everything because um, as much as we went on social media, we didn't hear, you know, a quarter of everything that was going on. Looking back at uh, the controversy that arose after the Thailand game and the celebrations. Me? Um, well, both of you. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, looking back at it, what are your thoughts? Um, I understand what, what people are saying, obviously, but I, I don't think 
and this isn't a, a knock on other people, but you don't understand what it's like to be in our position. Um, you know, for some of the younger players, this is their first ever World Cup. I mean, Mallory Pugh, obviously, I think she scored the last goal, gets in and scores her first ever World Cup goal. I mean, Sam Mew is scoring goals, Roosevelt. It's like, in us, of course, it's like we don't know, you know, how many opportunities we're going to get. So, mm-hmm. and we have so much pressure on us all the time. I think we carry such um, a serious weight at times that when we get on the field, um, we just like to enjoy ourselves. And I said this um, after, it's like if, if anyone wants to come at the team or any individual for not doing the right thing, representing ourselves the right way or playing the game the right way, um, we welcome we welcome that because I think that we really um, are very true ambassadors to the game and take that very seriously and are extremely proud of the position that we're in. Yeah, I think you have to look at that game, too, as an outlier. You know, going into that game, we didn't know how it was going to end. Obviously, we were very optimistic about it, and there was a large gap between our ranking and theirs. Um, But you have to think that every game you play could be the last game. You never know um, how a World Cup is going to go. You, For us, we... Never, we didn't know a couple years ago how our journey was going to be on the, on the team or what our future was going to look like on the team. We all individually faced so much adversity and then collectively as a team, it was just kind of that pure joy in the celebrations and just like celebrating each other in the fact. And I guess we didn't really feel that there was going to be consequences of that. Obviously there was a little criticism, but I felt like we took that in stride and we, we continued to move on. Is there any way in which maybe that criticism right from the beginning in your first game brought the team together? I think it did. I was, I was trying to explain to the group before how basically the, you know, the, the media's role is to cover the teams. We're going to be the most covered team. It's actually their job to talk about something for four days in a row until we have another game. And, you know, the game, uh, was obviously, uh, very lopsided Hopefully in they our do favor. It in a fair way. <laughs> yes, of course. And I think you do. It's like, and honestly, you want that for the sport. You want, um, you want there to be stories. You want there to be interest. You want there to sort of be that drama. So there was like no better example for the team. Right away, it was like, okay, we're at the World Cup. This yeah. is perfect. Purely in terms of the way the team was constituted, the way it played, how would you describe what made this team perhaps the greatest ever? That's a hard question. I think this team, more than any other team or year that I've been a part of, knew exactly how we were going to win. I think some of our performances were amazing. Some of our performances, we struggled a little bit. Um, We had to dig deep. But I feel like every single person knew exactly the way that we were going to win. And that just brought the group like this. And every time we needed to lean on someone new, um, we had injuries throughout the tournament. We have tired legs throughout the tournament. We have rotation to the tournament. And at every step, the whole team leans on that one person. And they have the confidence to stand up and hold the whole team up. It's so emotionally, mentally taxing and exhausting. Um, and just for this team to like rally together and support each other in a way that I've never felt on this team was, was incredible. And I think we took a step forward with that first game and kind of the criticism we felt. I think we just all, mm-hmm. you know, came even closer and helped each other out. It was difficult for a lot of players. If you're not playing on the, you know, if you're not getting on the field, um, it's very difficult. Even if you're playing on the field to turn it around and do it every four days, um, you, we had to play our role and everyone executed perfectly. Uh- Perhaps it's a little unfair to put you guys on the spot and ask this, but is this the best women's soccer team ever? I, I do think so. Um, obviously, with with all respect to every team that's come before, but I just think the the game has 
has gone so much further than it ever has. It's at the, the highest level all around the world. Um, I think we're constantly pushing ourselves and being pushed by every other team, and the game just continues to get better. It's hard to, you know, compare eras. I think every sport um, has that, but I think we at least have a good argument for it. You've been in uh, three World Cup finals. And, and Alex, for you personally, 2011 was so special. You burst yeah. onto the scene. You were 22 years old. You made a name for yourself overnight, it seemed. 2015, there were frustrations, and you were getting over an injury. So to achieve this now at the age of 30, scoring six goals in this tournament, tying for uh, the most points. Uh, Shout out. <laughs> um, how does it feel to have achieved this? Yeah, it's great. Um, it's just, I mean, looking back to 2011 to 2015 to now, um, I feel like I've grown so much as a person, and it's not without, like, the help of all my teammates, uh, Pino especially. So, and in, in 15, you know, it was Abby who was, who was my biggest supporter, and she was someone who just pushed me along. So, um, even if she wasn't playing on the field every day, so every game. So for me, it's just continuing to try to challenge myself and stay ahead of the curve and, um, be the best teammate and the best player that I could possibly be. And I feel like I've been able to achieve that, but it's not without um, a lot of adversity along the way. <laughs> we oh, laugh I because I feel like only we know. I mean, it's, it's yeah. tough to explain. This victory means so much to so many. It's having such a big impact. It's uh, This team is having a moment, and it goes beyond, as you said earlier, just the victory on the field. In terms of the political backdrop, and you're back and forth with the president of the United States, Donald Trump. How do you put it into perspective? I think we know who won that. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I held up my end of the bargain uh, on that one. Um, honestly, I see it as, as a positive thing. I think when it was happening, um, we did keep a really tight bubble, um, and the whole group was so supportive of me. But it did feel like positive in a way. Obviously, I think the tweets were um, negative in tone, um, as he usually does. But I think that we we just even more so realize in that moment we're, we're so much more than what we are on the field. Um, and I think this team really understands and is so prideful that we we do carry with us other people when we step out on the pitch. It's, it's the game, of course, and we want to win. Um, but knowing the impact that we have already had um, and knowing the impact that we were going to have when we came home, um, the motivation of, of just that alone is incredible. And I really feel like we do this for our, our group, for ourselves, for our team, for our staff, for our friends and family, and for everyone. Um, I think that we, we always want to try to bring more people into the conversation. We want to have the conversation uh, we want to open it up to everyone. Um, I think, obviously, we are very lucky to wear the shirt and to represent America in a way that no team really does. Uh, we're very lucky. We play all kinds of games all year long. Um, and I think that we do an incredible job of representing every American. Whenever um, someone in sports takes a political stand, of course, there's criticism from any side that <laughs> opposes their viewpoint. Mm -hmm. um, is it ever problematic uh, for you or for the rest of the team in the sense that you risk alienating people who are supporters of the president? I think that we take that into consideration for sure. Um, I think we we do our best not to attack anyone. Um, I, I definitely know that there's there has been times when I've done that, so that's something as as a as a learning for me always. But I think that the message that we have really is for everyone. Um, it's about equality. It's about supporting each other. 
Um, it's about being the best person that you could be. It's about opening up opportunities for every single person. And so within the, you're, wel- yeah. you're, you're welcome to, to join. We, we don't want to alienate anyone. Um, everyone um, that lives in this country um, is so prideful to do so. And I think having open and honest, honest conversations gets us to a point where it's better for everyone. We're trying to, you know, raise more opportunities for girls and women around the world to be able to be included and respected in the sport. And I feel like we're not always going to reap the benefits of that. We have we're so lucky to be able to play this sport and do what we love and and be well supported by our federation. But we also want to continue to raise a bar to nudge people, to nudge our federation along, to nudge FIFA along. So I think that, you know, we're doing a lot to continue to increase opportunity. And I think people respect that side of us. And um, and I mean, I think we're doing a pretty good job of it, but we have to continue to push forward because it's not without, I think, a lot of hard work and, and also not reaping the benefits and hoping that that next generation really does and don't, doesn't really have to fight for that. I mean, that kind of a do. stunning moment, right, on Sunday in, in Lyon when the chant of equal pay comes up from the crowd. I mean, that that is an issue now yeah. that the whole country is talking about. And it goes beyond soccer, of course. Where does that fight go? Obviously, there's mediation coming up. Uh, between uh, the women's national team and the federation. But where do you think it stands right now in terms of public perception, Alex? Well, I think clearly we have, (laughs) I think we have the fan support. Um, There's no denying that. But just moving forward, I I think we really want a collaborative approach with U.S. soccer. Um, And I think we're very optimistic about that. Um, You know, they've done an incredible job of supporting us. This World Cup is um, just shows really what federations do support their teams um, and who really made it the furthest. You look at the England's, France, um, our team, and as comparison to a Brazil who has so much potential, who could easily make it into the final given their quality, but don't quite have the support. So we have to continue to push that along, and I think we're, we're doing that. A remarkable achievement, consecutive World Cup victories. I believe it's only the German women, the Brazilian men, and the Italian men who have ever done that before. Thank you so much for joining us here in New York. Thanks for having us. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Our next guest is one of America's most successful businessmen, one of its wealthiest, also a benefactor of the game of soccer. He recently, just in the last couple of weeks, finalized the purchase of one of the most legendary teams in global soccer, Fiorentina of Serie A in Italy. He is also the owner of the New York Cosmos. And as I said, he is a figure in the world of soccer in the U.S. for a long time after immigrating to the U.S. from Italy when he was 12 years old. It's a pleasure to welcome to the sporting life Rocco Camiso. Rocco, thank you for being with us. Well, thank you. All right. It's my... uh Pleasure to talk to you guys. It's our pleasure, Rocco. And of course, you know, this is a big week for soccer globally. Uh, and I know I don't just mean the purchase of Fiorentina, uh, but I mean, of course, what happened with the Women's World Cup, the victory for the United States in France on Sunday. You've been part uh, of the soccer community in the U.S. for such a long time. You were a standout player at Columbia University in the early 1970s. You owned the Cosmos. Um what do you think this victory means for the game at large in the U.S.? Well, look, uh, going back to my my uh, roots, I've been involved, as you mentioned, with soccer my entire life. I'm 69 years old, all right? So I'm not a little boy anymore. 
And uh, <laughs> soccer has meant so much to me, given the fact that it wasn't for soccer, I probably would not have gotten the scholarships, undergraduate scholarships at Columbia University and the rest. <clears throat> you know, it's history with respect to my career. But when we inaugurated, you know, the Rocco Comiso Stadium at Columbia University, I, you know, back in 2013, the first message that I gave out, this is the stadium for both the women and the men. And as far as I'm concerned, you know, they can play in the field, and I love them both. So I coached for many years uh, uh, at the youth level where women and girls, I should say, and, and boys teams. And uh, I, I find it amazing, not just amazing, but, uh, yeah, I'm so proud of what the Americans have accomplished uh, I, on the women's side, naturally. I can't say the same thing with the men. Uh, because I uh, will make a lot of little girls, you know, uh, 5, 10, 15 years down the road, hopefully, you know, go out and compete with the USA. So it's a wonderful, uh, wonderful record, you know, to have won four World Cups. Uh, clearly, look, America has been at the top of the women game for a long time. There's competition coming about in Europe with the club teams like Charentina. Uh, having their own academies and having their own women's team. So things may change going forward, but so far, so good. We're speaking with Rocco Camiso. He is one of America's wealthiest men. He owns Mediacom, the fifth largest cable company in the United States. He went to Columbia University to play soccer and to study uh, in the early 1970s. Uh, you know, and, and Rocco, before we get to Fiorentino, which it was announced this week will be playing in the International uh, Champions Tournament coming to the United States this summer, um, replacing uh, Roma, which had to pull out because of obligations for qualifying in Europe. Um you bought the Cosmos a few years ago, and I have to admit, I'm a New Yorker. I grew up with the, Com- the Cosmos of Palais and Canalia and Beckenbauer and Shep Messing and, and all those greats who made soccer in, the, in New York so exciting back in the 1970s. Um, why did you want to buy the Cosmos, who are not part of the Premier League in uh, – or I should say the preeminent league in the U.S., MLS? Well, look, I mean, the Cosmos back in the 70s was my team that I went to watch, you know, especially at Giants. It used to be called Giants Stadium, if you remember those days, right? And in the 70s. I do. And, uh, you know, in the midst of also looking at Fiorentina and some other clubs in Europe, uh, the opportunity came about in one day that unless I came in to salvage, the Cosmos was shut down and shut down for good. In fact, there was a competing offer on the table where the MLS, you know, the New York teams and the MLS would buy the club just for their name and, and, and put uh, and put the name somewhere in the attic for which the Cosmos name would probably never be seen again. So I felt I had an obligation, moral one, right, uh, to go out and see if I could save the team. Unfortunately, I did that. Uh, but once the team got going, we got a new stadium uh, to play in, and MCU Park in Brooklyn, shirts and everything. We redid the team and did extremely well. You know, even though there was no team a month uh, in the month of January or February, you know, by the time we played our first game at home on April 1st, you know, we had a good team. But, uh, you know, the powers to be at the USSF realized that maybe it's no good to have this Rocco, 
Camisa or this team succeed. And within uh, less than six months, they put us out of business. You know, they took the whole league, the NASL, which was Division Two, and uh, dropped them down uh, to Division Four without giving me the ability, you know, to, uh, you know, to accomplish the goals that I'd set, you know, for the team and for the league. So it's just unfortunate. We could go on and on on this. We have all kinds of lawsuits um, uh, against the United States Soccer Federation for what they have done, which is wrong to favor one league versus another. And by the way, since we're talking about the women's league, you know, you should know that even uh, the women's team, with with the same lawyer, you know, it's my lawyer uh, that's representing the women's team is also suing this organization called the United States Soccer Federation. You, you mean Jeffrey Kessler? Yes, yes, sir. And, uh, uh, you know, and it's suing. Uh, it, it's, that lawsuit got started three or four months ago. So the USSF is getting sued from all corners. Even their own foundation is suing them. Because you got a bunch of people that don't have their money at risk. They're there. You know, to control the, you know, their their activities, you know, uh, without caring about, frankly, you know, the future of the sport in America the way they should. Uh, the women have done great, but not because of USSF, all right? It's because of, as we talked about, Title IX and the early successes the American women have had. Uh, but the men have really not done well, including the fact that they did not qualify for the World Cup this year. So there's a lot of issues in American soccer uh, that need to be dealt with. But on this podcast, it's too short to go over that. <laughs> there's a lot going on. But but just briefly, Rocco, um, where do the Cosmos stand right now? They are playing in a semblance of a league. We're in Division 4. We're in Division 4. We're waiting for... You know, resolution of the lawsuits has taken a long time. You know, we thought by now it would be resolved. You know, the stumbling blocks in between, you know, the way these lawsuits, this is a major antitrust lawsuit. So we would hope the next six to nine months, something will, you know, we have a better heading as to where we're going, but it could change the face of American soccer and how it gets regulated in this country to the extent that, you know, we win this thing. We're speaking with Rocco Camiso. He is a billionaire. He is the man uh, in charge of Mediacom, one of the largest cable companies in America. He's the owner of the New York Cosmos, uh, as we were just discussing, or what's left of them as they try to uh, become relevant again in the conversation, American professional soccer. And he's just finalized his purchase of Fiorentina. Uh, the Italian team with a long and storied history. Why Fiorentina? Of all the teams out there, Rocco, you're from Calabria. Why Fiorentina? Uh, listen, Fiorentina uh, uh, is viewed probably, at least by me, the most beautiful city in the world. Firenze, right? yes. So let's get that out. Florence. Firenze, Firenze. You know, the heart <laughs> of the Renaissance. Michelangelo, <laughs> Leonardo da Vinci, Dante Alighieri, Petrarch. You want me to mention a few of those? All right. So, so look, it is beautiful. It's a city, uh, unlike some other towns, some other big cities that only has one, which is the Fiorentina Club. You know, Torino and Milano and Roma and Genova, you know, they have more than one team in the same city. It's phenomenal, phenomenal um, uh, links between the city, the fans, and the citizens of, of, of the town. Uh, uh, with, with the team, I give you an example. When I, the day that I entered uh, the city, 
as the new owner, you know, in less than 24 hours, they organized, you know, I get together. And I thought the get together was to go and shake a few hands. They had 8,000 people on the stand singing and, you know, and welcomed me with, with an affection and warmth that I never felt in my entire life. Okay. So, uh, you know, as I tell people, I usually go to the, to the, I've gone to the stadiums to cheer other people. This time was, they were cheering me for what I'd done to buy Fiorentina. So it's a, it's a club that have not won anything in terms of trophies in the last 17 years. Um, uh, and, uh, and I hope, uh, if they give me time, yeah, to be able to bring some wins on the Fiorentina side and make the fans you know, very happy is that uh, they have an owner that, you know, it's more like them as opposed to an owner um, of a soccer team. Often described as a thorn in the side of the soccer establishment here in the U.S. and now the owner of Fiorentina, the Friends of Blaze-based Serie A team. Rocco, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you very much. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. In the 1960s and 1970s, a man named Bob Larson revolutionized running in the United States, yet his name remains mostly unknown except to aficionados. That is about to change thanks to a new book by Matt Futterman, Running to the Edge, a band of misfits and the guru who unlocked the secrets of speed. Bob Larson is the guru. Matthew Futterman, who is the deputy sports editor of the New York Times, is the author. And Mr. Futterman joins us now. Matt, you're a runner in this book, Running to the Edge. It's about Bob Larson. It's about uh, the revolutionary changes in American running over the last half century. Uh, it's also a personal book, though. Because you are a runner, you've run in the Boston Marathon. I think your personal best is what? Are we down to a 315 now, Matt? Down to a 315, yes. Congratulations. I hate you. Um, <laughs> why did you want to write this book, Matt? Uh, I wanted to write a running book for a long time um, because it's sort of the the lens through which I sort of see the world and approach my life. It's, a, it's, it's like been a big part of my life for about 35 years. I, I like to say I don't really remember myself before I ran, uh, and it's kind of true. Um, I really don't remember, like, not running most days. Uh, and so, but I was always looking around for this, this story that would capture the emotions that I felt and would get at the question that has sort of been batting around my head for the last 10 years, which is, why do we run? Uh, what is it we're doing out there? Because it's kind of a cerebral thing. It's a very elemental activity. And it just sort of has captured so many people. It certainly captured me. And I knew Bob through his coaching of Meb Kifleski, but I had no idea what his backstory was and what his origin story was. And I had no idea that he was really the only, he's really the only figure that was there at the birth of the running boom and was one of the first people to be in this country trying to figure out how, how we run far fast. And then he was the guy in the 2000s when American long distance running had just completely gone to hell to bring it back and resuscitate it and say, no, it, it, the East Africans, there's nothing biologically different than them, than us that, that they have 
they're just working harder and they're doing it at altitude and they're doing the hard work. And uh, he's the guy who was responsible for that. So it was just uh, kind of an amazing sort of story about the you know, rise, fall, and re-rise of American long-distance running and the idea that he had come up with his theories with these hippie runners in 60s and 70s San Diego named the Hummel Toads uh, was just sort of everything I was looking for. We're speaking with Matthew Futterman. He's the deputy sports editor of the New York Times. He used to write for the Wall Street Journal. His new book is Running to the Edge, a fascinating story of... Uh, about American running over more than the last half century since, I guess, uh, Bob Larson got to San Diego in the 50s, moving there from Minnesota. He'd been a Minnesota farm boy, uh, gets to San Diego as a kid, as you write in the book, and his talent is immediately recognized, and he goes on from there to develop a culture of running in this in this country that had never previously existed. And one of the interesting things I know you, you know, there are many interesting things here that you point out in the book is that he came to understand what made those great runners from East Africa, those great distance runners from Kenya and from Ethiopia and from Tanzania, as great as they were before there was an understanding in those places about what made them excellent. How did he develop his theories about what makes excellence in distance running? Well, one of the great coincidences of his life is that he's a really good runner, and he's at San Diego State, and he is running. He's one of the few people that's actually running on the roads in the summers in the 1960, in you know this late 50s and early 1960s. You just didn't see that. Uh, it just wasn't happening. And he's studying physical education and kinesiology, and he is uh, he falls under the sway of a professor named Fred Cash, who is doing some of the first studies in this country about um, cardiology and human performance and and the heart as a muscle. It was thought back then, which is this is kind of a completely crazy thought because the modern world had really sort of been invented by then. But in terms of uh, cardiovascular knowledge, it was thought that if you were to strain your heart after the age of about 35, that was to risk a catastrophic cardiac event. And, I mean, it's just completely ridiculous when we think about the world today. And Fred Cash was one of the first people to say, no, the heart is a muscle like any other, and if you train it, if you work it, it will get stronger. And Bob starts working with him, and he thinks he has his sort of aha moment, which is, wait a minute, that's what I'm feeling when I go running on the roads. And when I go for these five and six and eight-mile runs, I feel like I'm getting stronger. And he's working with him, and what he does through that work and through that research is he kind of comes up with a third way because there were two schools of training back then. One was Lydiard, who uh, is, an, is the Kiwi, uh, who sort of invented the idea of jogging, who was very big on volume, and his whole thought was train, don't strain. And then there were the crazy interval guys, the Eastern Europeans, like Emil Zatopek, who would run 60 quarter miles in 65 seconds or less, just over and over again. In his army boots, they used to say. Was that true? Yeah, I don't know if the army boots was true, but they would do – I mean, they just – They said it, though. They, they were good public relations men back in those days. Yes, good, good PR. So they would do these crazy things. And Bob Larson's idea was the long runs don't have to be so slow – 
and the intervals don't have to be so short. So he basically invented what we now call the tempo run, which is just going really hard, going to your edge, going to your threshold, and learning how to stay there and learning how to be comfortable with discomfort for a long period of time. And that's essentially what the East Africans were doing in the 90s when America was worried about, uh uh-oh, don't overtrain. And that's where the sort of revelation was, that it's not about taking it easy on your body. It's about learning to push your body as hard as it can go for as long as it can go, and then doing it again. And that's what these humble toads did, these hippie runners did in the 60s and 70s, who were his lab rats. And that's what he did in the 2000s when he wanted to compete with the best in the world. He formed this little group called the Mammoth Track Club, and in 2004, they took two of the six marathon medals at the Olympics. It's a personal story. It's about a spiritual journey. It is also a history of distance running in the U.S. over the last half century. Uh, And it is the story of Bob Larson and his impact on American sports in that time as well. Terrific new book from Matthew Futterman, Running to the Edge, A Band of Misfits and the Guru Who Unlocked the Secrets of Speed. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having joined us. I'm Jeremy Schapp, and this has been The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio. We're on every Saturday and every Sunday morning at 6 Eastern Time.